Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of Healthy Conversations with Omi Naidu, the show where we connect the experts directly to you. In this episode, I'm joined by Professor Renee Blau, who's an associate professor at Stellenbosch University. She is a senior researcher in dietetics and human nutrition and has presented at numerous national and international scientific meetings. Professor Blau is also responsible for supervising postgraduate students and is a committee member for the GLIM criteria, an initiative to get a global standard for diagnosing malnutrition. In this episode, we peel away the layers of an ignored issue, that being hospital malnutrition. A special thanks to the guys from Fresenius Carby for supporting this episode. And please don't forget to like, share and subscribe. It's a warm welcome to Professor Blau. Yes, good morning. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you for being on the show and making the time. I know that you have a crazy schedule between the university and the research. So we really appreciate you making the time. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, the reason I had reached out to you was that, you know, in line with Hospital Malnutrition Awareness Week and Malnutrition Awareness Week, I had come across a brilliant paper that you had published in 2019. But if we could take a step back, you know, before we get into the nitty gritty, what do you think led you down the path of being, doing research in the area of hospital malnutrition? I think many things. The, the first one is that lack of South African data um, and the fact that it's then easy to say, well, since we don't know the situation here, we can't use international data. But for me, it was also the absolutely devastating effect of hospital malnutrition on the patients. So you know, whether we can compare our data to the rest of the world, it's something that we just cannot ignore. And on our daily ward rounds, once you actually start to be aware and then you start looking for it, you just realize that the extent of malnutrition is massive. Um, and we, you know, we just cannot longer ignore that. So that was more of a, of a passion built in from what we see on a daily basis, but also, I mean, just looking at the numbers growing across the globe. Um, I really, really just have a, a passion for trying to do something about that. So when I, when I look at the research, there's, there's quite a big variance between what's the reported prevalence of hospital malnutrition. I think the range is like mm. between 11 and 74%. In your opinion, why do you think this is the case? You know, are certain populations more at risk? Do other populations have a higher burden of disease? Or do you think certain countries have maybe better systems in terms of picking up, diagnosing and treating? Mm-hmm. All of the above. Okay. Um, I, I, think, <laughs> I think most definitely, yes, some people are just more aware and they pick it up quicker and, you know, therefore they, they, they report that. But taking a step back, I personally think it is because we are trying to compare apples with pears. Uh, because if you really look at the various prevalence studies, then some of them report at risk of malnutrition used or diagnosed through a screening tool, whereas others report malnutrition diagnosed through a malnutrition diagnostic tool. And it's it's two different components. Um, And obviously the at risk of prevalence will be higher than the the actual final malnutrition diagnosed group. 
Um, so, so we have to be very careful when we when we talk about various prevalences that we have to check that was it the at risk or was it a malnutrition. So that's one of the components. Um, and secondly, also because there are so many. I mean, at last count, I think there was like fifty odd or more screening tools for malnutrition um, or for at risk for malnutrition. I mean, it's massive. So you can imagine that if those tools aren't validated against each other, that's what we will end up with is this mismatch of, of information. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that because of this confusion in what the final numbers would be that we must ignore it. I mean, they all indicate to a problem. So we've got a problem. But I believe going forward, if we can use similar tools, at least we can put on the table, if I say it's 20 and you say it's 20, then we know it's 20 because we used a similar tool to get to our diagnosis and our prevalence data. So I think that, that you know, going forward will definitely help. Um, but yeah, so, so using different tools, number one, definitely also being more uh, vigilant and diagnosing earlier and sooner. And then yes, the third option, like you've mentioned, I mean, certain, environments probably have a little bit more affluence other environments definitely struggle a little bit more from an economic point of view so depending on the underlying cause of the malnutrition it will definitely also differ from country to country but even within a country from region to region and and i think also if if we do the research at a at a tertiary academic hospital versus doing the research in South Africa at a, at a primary care setting, we will also find different values because you know, we just have different patient profiles that we see at the various tiers of, of the public health sector that we have in our country versus the private sector, for instance. So all of those factors will definitely influence the final prevalence value that we put on the table. I feel like we we kind of just scratching the surface at a at a really bigger demon that it's not fully understood as yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, one hundred percent and 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 ignored to a great extent uh, because it's it's relatively easy to ignore it because malnutrition is malnutrition. You know, everybody has it, and so what? You know, you, you get the feeling that the actual real value purpose the importance is not acknowledged and understood. Um, and for me, there's, there's pretty much a lack of a champion, lack of a person or persons or groups of people that feel, okay, we will take this forward and we will drive this. Because in many of our hospitals, I don't know about in your, in your place of the woods, but here it's that constant battle of who's responsible for weighing a patient. You know, is it the dietitian? Is it the nurse? Is it the whoever? Who's responsible for you know doing all of these parameters? And in between those battles, it's just not done, um, and and that is that's unacceptable. Yes, no, I think you 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 hit the nail on the head. You know, there's almost this gray area, but I hope you know if there's any dietitians or nutritional professionals listening to the podcast today, it it inspires them and it reignites their passion to, to pick up this issue and also intervene more appropriately. Uh, Professor Blau, if we could, you know, for those that have not read your paper, we'll be attaching the copy of it in the show notes. Could you just give us a summary of, of what you did in the study and what were the findings? Yes, thank you. Study, uh, 
run at six tertiary institutions, three of them in South Africa. It was um, Tigerberg Hospital, University of Cape Town, or Kretiskia Hospital, and um, Barra Hospital in Johannesburg. And then we had three hospitals on the African continent, one of them in Ghana and two of them in Kenya. So at those six institutions, we had we selected about 400 patients, adult patients admitted to a hospital with random selection, and we assessed their nutritional status on admission to a hospital. We used the NRS 2002 screening tool to, for the at-risk criteria. We then followed them for the duration of hospitalization up until day 28, if they haven't been discharged by that point in time. And we then noted their, their progress, so any potential complications or any output. We then reassessed their nutritional status um, with this at-risk scoring tool on discharge. Um, and what we found was that on admission, the at-risk for malnutrition for the patients came to 61%. So 61% of all of the patients that we saw were classified at-risk for malnutrition. What we found was that when they were discharged and the average length of stay in, in the whole study was about just over six days, six and a half days, which is sort of fairly similar to, to what we have um, well in most of the hospitals in South Africa. Maybe also to mention that we had more than 2000 patients that we included. So at discharge, the at-risk for malnutrition was 71%, which means that we're definitely doing something seriously wrong. Because, I mean, if, if action was taken when patients are classified or diagnosed as at risk for malnutrition on admission, then they shouldn't deteriorate whilst under our care. They, you know, obviously they should improve. And, and in a relatively short period of time, they deteriorated. And we also found that those that were classified as at risk for malnutrition on admission, stayed longer, so it was a significantly longer length of stay, significantly more complications, more readmissions once they've been discharged, they came back more, more, more frequently, um, more mortality, so, so more death. So again, everything that is known to be associated with malnutrition, we were able to document on, on the African continent. And we also found that of all those patients, only 18% were referred support during the time of hospitalization in all of the hospitals. So, so this was not an intervention study. So obviously we, 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 we just noted what was happening in all of the hospitals. And clearly all of us at the end of the study had a lot to go back to and to try and address in our individual respective institutions to try and say, but what can we do to stop this from, from happening? So, so this study was, was, yeah, was done a, a while ago and, as you said, published in 2019. But for me, probably I expected the 60-odd percent malnutrition, but I did not expect that prevalence to rise to 70 percent by discharge. I think that is really, really something that we should address seriously. So those are really shocking statistics. Firstly, that we obviously on the upper end of that, that prevalence of hospital malnutrition, mm -hmm. but as you say that after hospitalization where you're meant to get support and treatment that the patient's actually worse off. Professor Blau, if we could just take a step back, uh, you, it was interesting to, to hear that 
being at risk for malnutrition had that impact on, on all those parameters. I think a lot of the time to some non-nutritional specialists, they believe that only if you have malnutrition diagnosed do all those parameters are affected. So it was interesting to hear that being at risk is a problem. 100%, 100%. So, I mean, we, we did not, for the purpose of the study, we used a screening tool. So we really just wanted to, to use the, the first layer of this whole process. And already we found this. Out of interest, and we'll, we'll probably also chat about this, and, and that is that this study was performed before there was a universal recommended tool to diagnose malnutrition. So that's why we used the screening tool. And, and as you know, from all of the many 50 odd screening tools, there is no one recommended tool. They, they, they all, everybody says you can use any tool as long as it's validated in your environment for the at-risk part. I, I compared the results of what we got. If we were to diagnose malnutrition at that point in time, and, and if I compare it or I compared it at that point in time to what the ESPEN criteria was at that point in time, which was primarily based on BMI and low muscle mass, compared it to the ASPEN criteria, which was the six different components, compared it to the SGA, which is a very extensive malnutrition diagnostic tool. And lastly, I compared it to GLIM, which was published while we were busy with the study. So we didn't plan the study based on it, but we had all the parameters retrospectively to, to classify. And interestingly, there was a 26% difference in the classification of malnutrition comparing those four tools. So again, it just shows that compare apples with apples. Yes. Um, from, from a 20, I think it was 32% was the lowest up to about just under 60% was, was the highest. Um, so we've got a problem. The extent of the problem we need to pinpoint with, with a universal tool that we can compare things with each other. But yeah, that was interesting. So to answer your question, yes, if you're already indicated to be at risk of malnutrition, that patient needs support. Because if you don't do anything, that patient will potentially move from the category of being at risk into the category of severe full-blown malnutrition whilst under our care in hospital. Okay, so could you comment on, you know, the you mentioned there's maybe two thirds of them that are falling into the at-risk category, but sadly only 20% are getting referred to, for nutritional support. And in your paper, you also comment that in your study, you found that within the first 48 hours, only 8% are referred for nutritional yeah. support. So we know that timeless intervention is needed. In your opinion, how do we change what's happening or how do us as dietitians take the bull by the horns to say we need to get involved early and what do we need to do? Mm -hmm. So, so important question. And, and I think it, it sort of touches on what I mentioned previously in terms of who's responsible for this. So who is the champion that needs to drive the process? Um, for me, what is important is that every hospital should have a policy that every single patient admitted should be screened for malnutrition, at least have a weight and a height measurement. I mean, it is absolutely shocking looking at the statistics of the few studies that we have for South African data, that on average between 
I think it's 20 and 45%, if you look at the various studies, where there is a documented weight on the file of a patient. So less than half of the patients, we actually have a weight in South Africa for our studies. For height, it is between 11 and 21%. So if we can't even do the basics right of having weight and height, how in the able, you know, to take the step forward. So I believe it should be part of the initial documentation of admitting a patient to a hospital. Do a weight and a height, or if you don't have a scale, do a MUAC. I mean, everybody has a measuring tape, but have some form of an initial screening. But more than that is then based on that value on whoever does the screening, there should be an action. If the value is below this, call dietitian or do this or do that. It's not just a matter of do it and write it somewhere and okay, I've done my job. There should be an action that is linked to the actual value that was found. That will hopefully ensure that the patient comes on the radar of somebody soon within that 28 to 48 hours to say that this patient at least needs a dietitian can then go and do a full on nutrition status assessment and decide, okay, maybe it's okay, I can prescribe or just check the patient, it's adequately or prescribe a nutrition supplement, but I don't have to do a full on assessment or while this patient really needs attention, I need to flag this patient. But if we don't do that, then between the admission and by the time somebody decides to refer the patient at ward level, easily a week can go by. And you know, just nothing will happen. So, so we need to champion at each of our institutions to have a system going that it is implemented on day one plus an action attached to that. For me, that is very important. Thank you for, for that part of, uh, you know, giving us some, some options as to how to, to combat this. And would you then, uh, you know, discuss with us in the paper, there was obviously a difference in terms of, you know, weight and specifically in terms of diagnosis. So we saw with the HIV TB, there was a, a lot bigger of an issue oncology. But just uh, firstly, in terms of endocrine diseases, that was a little bit surprising for me. Could you maybe elaborate or, or explain further? Yeah, the, the, so the endocrine diseases also include, for instance, diabetes mellitus that falls under endocrinology. So most of the diseases that have the highest prevalence of malnutrition are the chronic diseases. Whereas if you look at the, 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 the areas or the, let's call it wards or blocks, where we had the lowest, it was like your um, surgery patient that comes in for a scheduled surgery. So, you know, it, it sort of makes sense. The, the longer the, the chronicity of the disease, the more the underlying inflammation that is associated with that disease, most likely the bigger the prevalence of malnutrition. And, and that it, I think it's very uh, relevant that you mention that because as dietitian, if, if I'm working at a hospital and it's only me and myself, then you, know, you can't be everywhere at, at, and see all the patients. So at least then you can prioritize certain wards and maybe prioritize the, the internal medicine wards where you will get your more chronic disease patients um, and at least try and ensure that you see all of those patients. Whereas in the surgery ward, you can potentially be a little bit more um, selective based on the type of surgery and the underlying condition that the patient comes in. So you can sort of 
maybe spread your time and differentiate where you need to spend the most of your time and resources to try and identify the, the need, the patients at need for your support sooner. So, so that ties in a little bit, you know, when you speak of the, the endocrine findings, mm. you know, very often those, those diabetics are those obese patients that everybody, including the doctor, thinks they have enough reserves. It's fine if they're not mm. eating. And, mm. you know, it, it ties into the sarcopenia and just us trying to not also in our minds have our biases as to what the patient looks like in terms of at-risk for malnutrition. Yeah, yeah. It, it's so interesting that you mentioned that because I actually had a, a heated discussion <laughs> with, with a, 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 one of our nursing staff on Monday morning about a patient that was admitted last week, Thursday. And by Monday, the patient was still not receiving any nutrition, no referral, no nutrition. But the patient probably has a BMI of 28, 29, looking at her. So I asked, you know, what's going on? And she said, but look at the patient. She's okay. She's got lots of reserves. This patient was in ICU. So I said to her, do you realize that we lose at least between 15 and 20% of muscle mass every seven days that you spend in the ICU? So this patient of yours might look as if she's okay, she's got, you know, she's got some reserves, but she's losing muscle. Muscle is what she needs to get off that ventilator that you've got her on at the moment. Otherwise, the diaphragm can work, you know. So, so understanding that whole what you're just saying is that you can't just look at the patient and think everything is okay. Thanks for clarifying that, Professor Blau. And if we're looking at it, you know, when we are working with doctors, a lot of the time the sentiments are, you know, if they're in the ICU, we just need them to survive it. Nutrition can come a little bit later down the line or optimal nutrition. Is there any advice that you'd give to dietitians to create a better awareness to these doctors to let them know that nutrition and survival go hand in hand? Mm. I wish we all had all the tools in the world to, you know, to be able to measure and to physically show, because I mean, yes, unfortunately, if you have um, a measuring tape, it doesn't have the same effect as having ultrasound or a bioelectrical impedance that you can physically show the visual to, to show them, you know, the, the muscle mass, as I've said, is, is decreasing literally 20% in, in a week. And if you see that, I think it just makes that message so much stronger. Um, but we just need to be more aggressive. I, I really believe that literally jumping up and down and saying it's unacceptable. It is at least day three. We haven't even started. It's unacceptable. And if we follow the ESPEN guidelines of gradual introduction of nutrition. And by day three, you need to have at least a minimum target of 20 kilocalories and, and 1.3 protein. And thereafter, slowly, again, you, you build up. Um, if by day three, you're not there, well, then we need to push for supplemental PN or find an, an alternative way of, of you know, administering. I think, I think that question of standing at the waterfront in the morning and say, oh, we'll give it another 24 hours. We'll, we'll decide tomorrow. Let's see what happens with the gut. Tomorrow becomes tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And before we know it, it's Friday. Oh, we'll wait for Monday. And before we know it, it's 10 days down the line. 
So we as dietitians just need to be a little bit more aggressive at the ward rounds and say, sorry, guys, it's two, three days. We have to make a decision today. If it's not Ian, it has to be PN, but we have to do something. You yeah, know, I, I definitely agree with that. Uh, could you maybe comment also on, in your paper, we saw the median age was, was 43 years old. Mm. Would you, is it, is it unfair to assume that in our populations that we see in the hospital, you know, around the 60 to 70, where we know the hospital malnutrition is even a bigger problem. Is it, is it fair to assume that we can kind of think there's a worse off situation than what, what's being reported in the overall study findings if we had that elderly population? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that. It, it's just interesting that if you look at most of the studies of hospitalized patients in, in South Africa, then our average age in our hospitalized patient is about 20 years younger than the average age published for the European um, or the American studies. So we tend to definitely have a younger population in hospital. Um, and already in the younger population, we now found you know, a 60 odd percent prevalence rate. So you can imagine, as you so rightly say, that if we only included patients on average, let's say 50 plus years, and we tried to find the slightly more elderly age group, it would have been much worse. So most definitely, but it definitely, it's interesting if you compare all of the, our hospitalized patients on average tend to hover in their high 40s. So we definitely have a younger population group that we see. Yes, so if we could move on to, uh, you know, the, the main reason I wanted to also touch base was for, for you to enlighten our, our listeners on the GLIM criteria. And, you know, mm -hmm. if you could just start off with just giving us a background, what is GLIM? And, you know, to anyone listening that has absolutely no uh, knowledge of it, but hasn't used it before, could you maybe just give us a snapshot? Yeah, so, so GLIM was the... Um group of people that sort of came together internationally and said that we need to try and see if we can compare apples with apples. So it was literally a need to have one set of criteria for the diagnosis of malnutrition to be used globally. So the, the GLIM stands for the global, the global Leadership Initiative on Malnutrition, and it has representation from from Aspen, from the, from the American Entral Parental Nutrition, from Philampi, which is the Southern American region, from Europe, so Aspen, from um, Asian group, from Australian group, I represented Saspen. So they really tried to find representation from across the globe. And the group came together and said, well, okay, if we now plot all of the screening tools and we plot all of the malnutrition diagnostic tools and we try and come up with one tool that can be used across the globe what would that tool look like so you can imagine it was an, an interesting discussion uh, it was not something that happened overnight uh, there were many rounds of, of, of Delphi and of input but in the end the group came up with five criteria uh, for the final diagnosis of, of malnutrition. Three of those criteria, what we call phenotypic criteria, and two of them, what we call etiological criteria. And the, the phenotypic criteria, and, and obviously, firstly, to one step back, is all of these criteria were, was based on what was currently being done. So we try to find what, are the, what sort of, what is the golden thread 
across all of them and then what are the outliers and, and do we need to address that? So for the phenotypic criteria, it's, it's loss in, in, in body weight or percentage loss in weight. The second one is BMI. And the third one is some form of assessment of muscle mass, specifically to come to the point that we've just discussed, this extreme importance of muscle in the whole process of, of recovery. And then the etiological criteria, the two of them, the one is the a decreased in food intake or food assimilation, so food absorption. And the second one is an increased in inflammatory parameters. And you need to tick one box on the left and one on the right. So you need one positive phenotypic criteria and one etiological criteria to be positive to, for, for the final diagnosis of malnutrition. Of these five criteria, I think the one that caused the most discussion and probably the least um, um, consensus initially, but in the end, there was consensus when, when we published the final one, was that of BMI. Um, because, for instance, if you look at the, at the Aspen criteria, what the Americans used previously, BMI does not feature as a classification of malnutrition, because the majority of their patients have a high BMI, which is very similar to what we have in South Africa. If we, if we just take our average population data, I think the latest data for the adult female is about 61% of overweight and obese, so we really have a huge problem. But many of the countries, especially more towards the Asian side, they still rely heavily on BMI because a low BMI is a huge problem in, you know, in, in those areas. So to try and, and be, you know, to try and accommodate everybody, it was decided to keep that specific criterion of BMI in. But the fact that you have percentage weight loss means that even if you have a BMI of 30 or 35, if you've lost more than 5% of weight without obviously trying to do that, you already can tick the box. So, or if you have a low muscle mass, so your sarcopenic obesity patient, you will still be able to identify that patient as malnourished. So the five criteria is now put on the table. This publication came out towards the end of, of 2018, I think if I remember the dates correctly. And, and all of us that's part of this team have now the, the job by lack of a better word, to go back to our respective environments and to use the criteria, to implement the criteria and to validate the criteria. Because it could be that we decide in South Africa that BMI cutoff of 18 or 20 or 25 or whatever it might be, does not work for our setting. We would like to prefer something else. You know, so everybody has the opportunity to validate and to come up and say, well, if we want to use this in our respective environments, then we prefer or we suggest different criteria. And the GLIM group meets regularly. We've just had a, a lots of very interesting meetings at the recent ESPN conference. Um, and the, the idea is that these criteria will be updated every couple of years with as new information is, is coming through. So our biggest challenge at the moment is validation to see whether those criteria can be used in the countries. Last thing I just want to mention, which, which is really important, and that is GLIM should not necessarily replace something else. So what I mean by that is if you have a system in your hospital where you have already an established screening setting and an established 
malnutrition diagnostic setting, let's say you use SGA, then by all means, go ahead, don't change that. But if you do not have a system going and you lost between the 60 odd different tools that's out there, then Glim could be a good way to start because it tells you if you use these five with the reference value, cutoff values that we currently have, it will give you a good end product. And also it will help you in future to compare your data with my data with that of the next guy because we all use the same diagnostic tool. So it's not, it's not in comparison or in competition with something else if you have an established system. But if you're swimming around and you don't know what to do, our suggestion is that you go forward and you use this criteria. So Professor Blau, I think it's very important that you know you you guys have come up with this universal yardstick because you know as you say we've got to compare apples to apples. Yeah and, and I think as I said the, the challenge is now out there to all of our colleagues and everybody to start using the tools and to document the data that, that we can really have good solid information on the table. And I think what I what I also have to mention is that Remember, GLIM is a diagnostic tool. It's not a screening tool. So the recommendation by the GLIM team is that you can use any screening tool as long as it's validated. So NRS 2002 or MUST or whatever tool works for you just to sift to see which patients are at risk of malnutrition. And those are the ones that you then continue and going forward and do a proper assessment to do the full GLIM on. So you don't have to do an ultrasound or a BMI on every pa a, a, a body impedance on any patient. You first just do your screening, identify your at risk, and then you move over to, to GLIM. And then you, the, the, the GLIM criteria becomes a bit um, technical, but then you can use the GLIM criteria to also classify the severity of the malnutrition. So you, for that part, you actually look at the phenotypic criteria. So the percentage weight loss, and the BMI that indicates the severity. It becomes slightly more important when it comes to ICD-10 coding and maybe classification and, 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 and you know, payment, et cetera. And, and it's probably more so in, in, in Europe and in the States than at what it is in South Africa at the moment. But then you also look at the etiological criteria, which is the intake and absorption as well as the information to give you an indication on etiology, which basically will dictate treatment because it will give you a direction of the potential cause of the malnutrition. Was it long-term starvation? Was it an inflammatory component? You know, what was the reason for this malnutrition? Because that will guide you towards treatment. So looking at the various components of GLIM can actually guide you in terms of where to start looking for the problem and how to address the problem. If you could comment uh, in your setting, I know that you're in an academic setting and a tertiary hospital. In your setting, is the screening tool done by nursing staff on admission? Because if I look at our personal setting, you know, having to convince any nursing staff to then do an additional task or an additional tool is almost asking them to walk on water. Mm. So sad to say, no, it is not routinely done uh, at, at, at our hospital. We haven't been able to implement that. So 
the the suggestion is that yes it should be done by the the nursing staff on admission so have a as i said a proper scale and a, and a height and a weight measurement and just do the initial screening um, unfortunately they just isn't enough dietitians to be able to screen and do full on nutrition status assessment for them for the diagnosis part. So if the screening part can be separated, the patients can be flagged, referred, then the dietitian can take that forward. But we, we're not successful yet in implementing that. And I have to state that unfortunately that is the situation. Yeah, I, th I think I, I take some consolation from knowing that, uh, you know, even in an academic setting, it, it's something that you, you're working towards. And I think if there's any dietitians that are listening, uh, you know, not to lose hope, but to look at structures and look at processes and, as you said, policies that can be drafted to, to pick it up. I think, you know, any attempt at fixing or, or remedying the situation is going to improve the numbers rather than, you know, it's an infinite either it's sorted out or not sorted out. I, in, in my, my dream world is if, if we can have electronic records throughout, which again, we, we don't yet have uh, where I work, but I know some places are fortunate enough that they already have it, but that the electronic record should be set such that you cannot actually continue to the next <laughs> entry without doing at least a weight and a height. You know, there, there should be some form of a system where you're blocked to, you know, to continue if those things aren't done. Because Let's face it, it's not the most difficult measurements to do, and it doesn't take that long. Um, it's, more, uh, it's more a will. It's more a I want to do it or I need to know that I have to do it. Um, it's two or three questions to a patient and pop them on the scale. And yes, not everybody can stand and be on the scale, but then you can ask the patient or you can ask the accompanying family a simple question that, you know, did this person lose weight or what has this patient's intake been like in the last couple of weeks? I mean, if it's clearly decreased, you don't need any more information than that to know I have to fact this patient for the dietitian to see. So there could be very simple questions that can be asked if the physical measurements aren't possible, just from the family to try and see whether this patient needs additional attention sooner rather than later. I think those technology wishes are not too far-fetched, especially uh, I remember watching a, a webinar with uh, Professor Elizabeth Duval, and I was so intrigued and interested by the fact that on a daily ward round, her software churns out to uh, how much of protein, calories, fluids, and, you know, one thing is prescription, yeah. but the other thing is actual intake. And it was amazing to see that. So I, I don't think it's a far-fetched request. I think if we've got any dietitians in the tech space, uh, they're listening, you know, please work faster. Absolutely. I, I agree with you. It's 100% it's, it's doable. Um, and I think we, we also need to get away from the excuse in South Africa of we don't have electronic this and that, so we can't do it. We've got all the tools in the world. We can do it. It's more a matter of a will to implement that. So maybe we should challenge each other to see who can get to it first. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Have a competition. <laughs> yeah, I know for sure. Professor Blau, thank you so much for making the time for the show. And, you know, firstly, with the great research in your papers that you do, I know that you train a lot of students, but also the impact that you're making in an area that we're obviously not winning at the moment, hospital malnutrition. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Well, it, it really is my passion. We are currently busy with a lot of studies, research studies with, with postgraduate students on various levels of validation, as I've mentioned previously, very quickly. Um, and, and we hope to 
to come up with maybe more simplified tools also that can be used in the absence of, as I say, more of the fancy tools that we can validate that in the South African setting. And, and, and as I said, every single dietitian needs to have at least a measuring tape. So taking a MUAC or taking a calf circumference is the easiest thing. It takes three seconds and immediately you will be able to at least have an indication, even if it's a proxy, not the real thing, but you'll have a proxy measurement of muscle mass which is the one very, very important component that we're trying to, to identify. So yeah, watch the space. I hope that I will be able to also provide you with more updated information, local information quite soon. And lastly, Professor Blau, you know, if you've got any dietitians that are, are listening to the podcast and, and thinking, you know, they'd like to get into research or they want to have an impact in, in terms of the research community, what would be a starting point? You know, very often if you're doing research, you've got to be in an academic setting. But like myself, you know, you've, you've taken the journey down private practice. You're a little bit out of touch with the academic setting. What would you say mm. to those kind of dietitians? So I think if, you, if you're interested and passionate about research, please find a way to do it. We, we need data and we actually need data, not just from the big academic hospitals. We need data from the private sector, from the, from the more rural areas in the country, from the smaller hospitals. So contact a, a research group where you know there's somebody that has a similar interest and see that you how you can establish collaboration and join in the team. Because the more people, the merrier, the more minds, the more ideas. And, and hopefully, again, you don't have to reinvent the wheel because somebody potentially already has some form of a protocol that you can then only just adapt to your setting start collecting data and we put all in the pot and we've got great South African data at the end of the day. Perfect. Thanks again, Professor Blau, and you have a good one. Thank you so much. All the best.